Hello, and welcome to the 13th episode of the InfoSec Sync podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H.net. InfoSec Sync is also brought to you by AllPoints. AllPoints provides a range of technology and mission-critical services within its core competencies that span systems engineering, information technology, cybersecurity, software development, as well as hardware and software integrated solutions. AllPoints, integrating personnel, technology, and services to exceed customer expectations. Visit them on the web at allpointsllc.com. InfoSec Inc. is also brought to you by the Van Dyke Technology Group. At Van Dyke, their work is focused on the performance and security of information systems of national impact. Optimize performance, maximize security. Experience the Van Dyke difference and visit them on the web at vdtg.com. And now... For the stories of the week ending January 13th, 2015. Hello, InfoSec Saint fam. What's going on, everybody? It's been a while. Welcome to the first podcast of, of the 2015. New Year, 2015. You already know. Glad to be back. Um, let's see. A lot's happened in the time that we've been uh, kind of in the holiday spirit yeah know. so we've taken an extended vacation leave of absence but we're back it's been a lot of data breaches a lot of hacks a lot of exploits a lot of exploits and look who's here with us who's in the building what's going on guys what's up vic what's up vic happy new year happy, happy new, new year, year to you what have you been up to how was christmas christmas was good spend a little time with the family, drank a little eggnog, opened a couple gifts. It's pretty good. How about you guys? Same Ravens. Old. Ravens. Ravens. Yeah, weren't you somewhere last week? Yep, I was lucky enough to go to the Patriots game and watch my favorite team lose. <laughs> <laughs> Dang you, Ravens. I don't know what happened. Double defense, you know, in the fourth throwing in a double defense i don't know what was worse the cold or the ravens losing <laughs> but it was a bitter experience for me <laughs> i think they were both equally as bad <laughs> so glad to have you on the show today um we got the whole crew here i think we have a jam-packed show today and we got we got a lot to talk about um so let's set it off let's set it off silk road reloaded so we all know what Silk Road is um, from the news. Hopefully no one here has gone to the Silk Road. It's a very bad place. Um, it is 
part of the deep web. It's a black market. Um, so Silk Road was shut down, and now there's a Silk Road 2.0. So we're going to give you a little bit of background on the new Silk Road and what it aims to do and you know how the community is talking about it. We'll give you all the inside hoops. So the newborn Silk Road um, is it's a black marketplace that adopts I2P anonymous network and different virtual currency schemes to protect illegal businesses. So the Operation Anonymous was conducted by law enforcement uh, allowed the seizures of dozens of black markets on the Tor networks. While all the underground marketplaces in the deep web, including Silk Road 2 went down due to the operation uh, of the police, the new marketplaces are trying to profit for the situation, like um, Evolution. Obviously, the cybercrime is continuing its illegal activities, and the examples are the... For example, the popular Silk Road Reloaded is online again and implements new anonymizing features, including I2P connectivity and the possibility to pay for the goods. The new version of Silk Road Marketplace called Silk Road Reloaded relies on the I2P anonymous network instead of Tor and allows payments with several virtual currencies, including Bitcoin, Darkcoin, Doggycoin, and Anacoin. Or non-coin, excuse me. So, um, an IS, well, an official website of the project says ITP is anonymous overlay network. That is a network within a network. It is intended to protect communications from dragnet surveillance and monitoring by third parties such as ISPs. Basically, ITP adopt peer-to-peer communications by design, and were developed to maintain hidden and the execution of application on the nodes of the network. Uh, ITP is scalable, self-organizing, resilient packet-switched anonymous network layer upon which any number of different anonymity or security-conscious applications can operate. The Silk Road Reloaded isn't the unique black market hosted on the ITP network. The Marketplace, which is another popular marketplace in the underground community, uses that same network. An official website of the ITP project provided a clear explanation of the primary differences between Tor and ITP. Tor and Onion Routing are both anonymizing proxy networks, allowing people to tunnel out through a low-latency mixed network. The two primary differences between Tor and Onion Routing, Tor slash Onion Routing and ITP, are again related to the differences in the threat model and the out-proxy design through Tor, which supports hidden services as well. In addition, Tor takes the directory-based approach providing a centralized point to manage the overall view of the network as well as gather reports and statistics, as opposed to I2P's distributed network database and peer selection. The I2P Tor outproxy functionality has a few substantial weaknesses against certain attackers. Once the communication leaves the mixnet, global passive adversaries can more easily mount traffic analysis. In addition, the outproxies have access to the clear text of the data transferred in both directions and our proxies are prone to abuse, along with all of the security issues we come to know and love with normal internet traffic. However, many people do not need to worry about these situations, as they are outside their threat model. Also, outside I2P's formal functional scope, if people want to build out proxy functionality on top of an anonymous communications layer, they can. In fact, some I2P users can take advantage of Tor to outproxy. 
states the official post of the project's website. Silk Road Reloaded, like its predecessor Silk Road and Silk Road 2.0, offers drug, counterfeit money, hacking tools, but seems to not sell neither weapons nor stolen credit card data. So Motherboard says, and I quote, this lack of weapons and stolen data may be due to the site owner's apparent political beliefs. It appears that the site owners subscribe to the same libertarian motivations that inspired the original Silk Road. Quote, who are we? Ones who care about true freedom, self-ownership, and self-possession. Yes, believe it or not, you own yourself. End quote. The site reads. So, <laughs> this is like Robin Hood hacking, you know, with what we were talking about. But also, for Silk Road Reloaded, the manager of the online black market monetize their efforts by taking a small fee, 1% on the transactions. And I quote from Motherboard, all functions are completely enabled and fully functional, says a message on the site. Sample data is being removed. Current vendors, your products will show shortly. Thank you for making the site launch a success, end quote. Silk Road Reloaded also includes a forum for its users and a built-in messaging system. At the time of writing, the newborn site appears to still um, be empty by security experts believe that it will soon reach popularity of other black markets. Silk Road Reloaded represents an important milestone in the evolution of marketplaces because it demonstrates that criminal crews are exploring, are exploring alternatives to sell legal products and services in total anonymity. And discuss. <clears throat> That's crazy. I remember between um, February 2011 and 2013, Silk Road managed to... Um, they did about $1.2 billion worth of transactions. And at that point, they had something like 957,000 users. And the earnings that the guy made from it were nearly $80 million. Right. So there's definitely a lot of money to be made on the table here for this marketplace. Um, it's illegal. <laughs> I mean, it, it's most definitely illegal because of what it sells and what it promotes. I understand the owner of Silk Road 2.0, um, especially it being over I2P. Well, excuse me. Silk Road and Silk Road 2.0 were old. This is Silk Road Reloaded. So SRR, Silk Road Reloaded, I think that they're trying to change it up by making it more legit, quote, end quote, but it's not really legit. I mean, there's there's really nothing about this that's that's legitimate except for the fact that they offer a place for people to sell things and to render payment now you're also adding the forum on there with a messaging service that's kind of a recipe for disaster however it is something to look at so if you're in an enterprise environment and somebody's logging into this and using it you need to be able to recognize the indicators so I know Tor requires endpoint, either a browser plugin or application to be installed on the system. I'm not sure about I2P. So you have to monitor your endpoints. If somebody has this installed, and there you can kind of look at the top level um, known IPs for the proxies and the uh, and the entry points for the entry proxies. However, that's all you're going to know. And if that's constantly changing, you're not going to know who in the enterprise is actually um, using this service unless you look at the software that's installed in the box. So 
again, if you have issued laptops, if you have BYOD, if you have, um, you know, a enterprise that has portable devices such as laptops and things like that, you need to ensure that people are using it in a uh, internet-approved fashion. The last thing you want to do is is have an issue where one of your employees is using a laptop or company property to log on to one of these sites and you know these these are very 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 illegal activities that are that are occurring and then plus they're logging on to the the dark web and all this and the reason why I say the dark web and it kind of put it in its own sense is because there are a very small subset of legitimate things that the dark web is used for a very small subset and when I say that I mean it's unknown IP space that's out there. It could be used for legitimate purposes in some form or fashion. But everything that we have seen and all the stories we've seen, it's been used for very illegal purposes. So definitely something to keep an eye out on um, and, and to look out for. So endpoint security, very important. Now, let's hop into the next topic. The U.S. Energy Department issued the guidance Energy Sector Cybersecurity Framework Implementation Guidance for organizations operating in the industry. The energy industry is constantly under attack. The number of hacking campaigns that are targeting the sector is increasing exponentially. Energy companies and utilities have to adopt a proper cybersecurity posture in order to mitigate the cyber threats. Some of the pillars for the approach of cybersecurity in the energy industry are the development of efficient risk management strategies, the adoption, cyber best practices, and the sharing of information regarding the threats, the incidents, and the countermeasures. On January 8th, the U.S. Energy Department has released a voluntary guidance titled the Energy Sector Cybersecurity Framework Implementation Guidance for Organizations Operating in the Industry. The Energy Sector Cybersecurity Framework Implementation guidance was prepared in response to the cybersecurity framework released by the National Institutes of Standards and Technology in 2014. The document highlights the necessity to improve the collaboration between the private industry and government entities to mitigate cyber threats. The guidance proposes principles and effective practices of risk management to develop a comprehensive cybersecurity framework necessary to improve the security and resilience of critical infrastructure in the energy sector. Some of the guidance reads, quote, the U.S. Department of Energy, as the energy sector-specific agency, worked with electricity subsector and oil and natural gas subsector coordinating councils along with other sector-specific agencies to develop this framework implementation guidance specifically for energy sector owners and operators. It is tailored to the energy sector's risk environment and existing cybersecurity and risk management tools and processes that organizations can use to implement the framework. The Energy Sector Cybersecurity Framework Implementation Guidance is designed to assist the organizations operating in the energy sector to evaluate the current level of cybersecurity reached by the organization, characterize a target cybersecurity posture, Characterize existing cybersecurity risk management programs, identifying gaps and possible improvement in compliance with the guidance. It is suggested to prioritize the gaps based on the potential damages caused by cyber attack. 
Identify existing sector tools, standards, and guidelines that could be adopted to support the implementation of an effective cybersecurity framework. And effectively demonstrate and communicate the risk management approach and the use of the framework to both internal and external stakeholders. The guidance shows how organizations that adopt C2M2 can align their security posture with the specification of the NIST framework. The guidance also proposes a range of other existing tools and practices that can support the adoption of a cybersecurity framework. The guidance was accepted positively by organizations operating in the energy sector that consider it a guidance that was developed by the industry for the industry. Energy organizations are a privileged target of cyber attacks, and for this reason, the implementation of the NIST cybersecurity framework is a necessary step to secure our society. Wow, very good story. And this is something that's been needed for a long time now, so I'm, I'm glad it finally came through. Right, I think that um, a lot of people don't want to deal with the SCADA issues, the ICS issues, um, through industrial control systems that we're facing today. And uh, it's really good that somebody's stepping in and coming up with a set of standards that can be adopted by the industry as a whole. And we've seen what can happen. I mean, the the blackouts they had in New York way back when, everyone had to walk. Um, recently, um, Shamoon, we also had um, Stuxnet. Yep. We had a number of a number of attacks that can occur and negatively affect operations. And unfortunately, we need these things in everyday life. Um, PLMs, PLCs, which are like controllers that are embedded in a particular environment that may control a substation or a centrifuge or something like that. That's a problem um, if we're not securing those things. So, you know, the implementation of a risk management framework, so RMF, right, with NIST, this is, this is something that, that's not new. Um, it, it's being adopted by FISMA um, and FedRAMP as well as other um, other inst- instantiations across the federal government. Essentially, what these things aim to do is the federal, federal government is paying for um, a particular software, a particular hardware deployment. And you know what I was kind of shocked to see? I was very shocked to see um, the department, what was it, Health and Human Services, HHS, with the rollout of the Obamacare website. That, to me, was a failure of the RMF because nothing was... There were no standards that were followed. There were no standards that were followed. And the the problem is when you're doing consultancy and when you're actually working with the federal government, it's very stringent. When something is ATO'd, when something is identified, you enter an IATT or whatever the case is. So... Therefore, I am glad that they're adopting the same mentality um, to the energy sector. It's something that is definitely needed, and we'll have to see where this takes us. Um, however, let's see. The U.S. Energy Department, so it was a voluntary guidance that they re- released, which is a good a good thing. So, so you bring up a good point because uh, I remember one, once I worked in a manufacturing uh, plant where we were doing an upgrade and it was a machine you said PLC it was a machine that actually cut the um, the structural parts for an airplane the honeycomb and it just made me think when you were kind of going through that like what if somebody got in 
and made some changes to it would cost some, billions of dollars and not even costs i mean that could go undetected i mean those things those calculations that they use to identify to make changes because they may not be using like configuration management you know this is something that the light bulb just went off i never even thought this far deep with something like that that would go undetected i mean we could have airplane you know those the airplane crashes and stuff like that and somebody would never even know that that was the way it was engineered right you know if i'm an operator that's on that on that assembly line yeah you're an engineer to a certain degree and when i say engineer that's used very loosely i think engineers it's kind of thrown around nowadays but you're an engineer it's it's you know a loose term basically when something is is cut by a machine right in this case this was the fuselage right the um the honeycomb design for the fuselage well, if you don't know what the exact measurements and specifications are there, and there's no quality assurance throughout the process, at a minimum, you would have have to throw it out. I mean, and that costs money. Um, but realistically, if it be- becomes undetected and it jeopardizes the integrity of the airplane as a whole, that that's a safety concern. Right. Something cut today, to you know, used as a part for an airplane, plane crashes. 20 years from now because of a poor design and, and you have a series of planes that will crash right and then and then not only that then that that probably went a lot no one identified that as an issue until they reverse engineered what you know what was actually being manufactured which is difficult so the the paramount issue that i see is manufacturers have been pushing software and hardware um solutions to customers such as and i don't want to name drop but you know Honeywell, General Electric, Snyder Electric, all of these major companies have been pushing out hardware and software. And at the same time, what are their requirements for security? Do they build security into their products? And as we've seen, they're used to serial design. So serial design is serial based. Serial based is a trusted network. You know everything that's on that's connected to that network. Now it's a little bit different with with um Nest, for example, a thermostat that I can install in my house, and it controls the temperature of my home. That's a problem if it's connected to the internet. It has very loose security controls. Is it Nest's problem for the security controls, or is it the ISP that you know needs to ensure that there are additional firewall rules in there to block any unauthorized access to a Nest thermostat? There, you know, it. it very loosely defined with with how that should be taken up but even to take it a step further substations substations handle 35,000 plus volts right that's a lot of power that's a lot of volts right that's a lot of volts um it's a lot of gigawatts it's a lot of gigawatts and the thing I don't with, even know if the flux capacitor could handle something I don't like think that. so 88 miles an hour may blow up <laughs> so the problem here is our dependency now is with a substation, for example, you have a controller that's out there. If I'm a plant manager and I'm not a CISO, I don't understand risk. I understand risk from a physical aspect, as in I know OSHA standards for my guys working on you know, electric components, changing out relays, changing out associated things. I know my craft. 
I'm not expected and shouldn't be expected to know, you know, how to equate risk from a cybersecurity standpoint. It's just not realistic. So if I have a guy who works at the substation and installs a, a wireless NIC, right, in one of the systems that controls the substation for ease of convenience, they don't want to get out of their car when it's 20 degrees outside. They've installed, you know, a wireless NIC in the system. Now, Nick, get it? Nick sitting here. Oh, right oh, Nick. Oh. Not you, Nick. Right. I'm so wireless. Uh, a network <laughs> interface card. So um, now they've introduced a security risk because now the adversary does not have to physically be in the plant to inflict any change or damage. Um, it, it's just something that, you know, I don't think people necessarily think of the security concerns and issues because the change cycles and the configuration management within the energy sector it has not been clearly defined. And hopefully, I will read through this tonight, hopefully this um, cybersecurity, energy sector cybersecurity framework implementation guidance does um, answer some of those questions. So, and, and I know you said it characterizes risk management among some other things, so it'll be a good read. It'll be very interesting. Side note, IDS has gone down at my house. I've installed it. So, which one did you install? I did uh, Security Onion. Oh, cool. Um, so that's uh, Bro, Snorby, um, CapMe for packet capture. So I'll probably be doing a tech segment hopefully here soon on um, installation and, and uh, usage of that within the house. But I'm also using PFSense for a firewall. So I have Snort VRT rules, which are their, you know, the vulnerability research team at Snort, as well as Siricata with the emerging threats. Um, so the Snort VRT rules, they get, you just download them? Yeah, so it's, it's uh, automatically updated through PFSense. That's awesome, so maybe we'll put that on the uh, the YouTube page. Yeah, man, we should definitely, I should do a screencast with, yeah. with setting it up, and you know, I can definitely run through the install again, it's no problem, and you know, we'll, we'll check it out. So, don't we know somebody who's a Snort expert? That was a lot of emphasis on that last one, Vic. Yeah, Vic, I think we know a couple people that are Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a now. common language, but you have to be able to What was that? You've got mail. Welcome. Welcome. You've got mail. It's one of those uh it's like COBOL, right? You got to know you got to know how to properly put it out there otherwise it's uh not served up right. Like these eggs. Nick, you still have AOL? <laughs> Man, how do you think I get online all the time? Dude, I'm telling you, you must have enough dis um, at your house. I've got my own phone line that I could dial into. I put it on the beginning of the of, of last year's uh, podcast. You know? <laughs> so, you know, guys, <laughs> Nick re- updated his phone, but I didn't know you could get AOL... He has an AOL app on his phone. <laughs> AOL app. I gotta been... plug into the um, phone jack though. Yeah, he has like um, he has a uh, what is it, um, Uma, <laughs> just to connect for his phone so he can connect to his 56k. You know, old habits die hard, but with this guy, no new habits. Right. I'm telling you. He's and there. even in his phone, he has like a satellite, the old school satellite satchel phone. He has one of those joints too, and it's just he said it's redundancy. His phone has to be high availability. And he he says AOL secure. I just think nobody wants to take the time to hack him. 
<laughs> it may take a long time. What's that? Oh, dude, he does have old apps on his phone. What is that, Frogger? Yeah, dude. He, he just showed us Netflix. Well, not Netflix. He has Napster. Dude, that may be this copyrighted. This is a step up because, you know, I've been to Nick's house. He that has may be copyrighted. A, you can't play that on this show. He's had the Atari 2600. <laughs> I think he stopped it. What? Oh, you still got it going? No, I still got it going. Uh, you know, this thing always stays live. What? I got Pac-Man. I got Missile Command. Donkey Kong? That's ridiculous. <laughs> you got to have, uh, what was one of the other ones? Pro Wrestling was Nintendo, right? Yeah, you know, Nick came in here last week dressed like uh, the big show. <laughs> you don't want to mess with this, man. That's right. What is that? Your big show outfit? Oh, that's Pac-Man. Anyways. Um, back to reality. Back back to reality. Back to the lecture at hand. Speaking of lectures, let's get into um, some evidence on the link between the Cosmic Duke, the Mini Duke, the... Onya Duke and the Advanced Persistent Threat Campaign. So researchers at F-Secure are constantly monitoring the cyber espionage campaigns, Mini Duke, Cosmic Duke, and Onion Duke, and provide an interesting update on the hacking operations. So below is a short description of the campaigns themselves. So Mini Duke, Kaspersky Lab, and Hungary's Laboratory of uh, Cryptography and System Security, or CRISIS, and Feb 2013 revealed that unknown hackers targeted dozens of computers at government agencies across Europe in a series of cyber attacks that exploited a recently discovered security flaw in Adobe. Analyzing the logs from the command servers, security, um, the experts found that 59 unique victims were in 23 countries. So that was Mini Duke. Cosmo Duke, April 2014. Experts at F-Secure, while investigating Miniduke malicious code, discovered a link to a new strain of malware dubbed Cosmic Duke belonging to the Cosmo family. The malware family discovered was using the same loader as Miniduke Stage 3, Onion Duke. In November 2014, experts Josh Pitts of Leviathan Security Group identified a Russian Tor exit node that was patching the binaries downloaded by the users with malware. Experts at F-Secure discovered a link between the crews operating the rogue Tor node that was used to spread the Onion Duke malware and the Mini Duke APT. The malware was way different from ones used in the past by the threat actor behind the Mini Duke crew. The Onion Duke has been used in attack against government agencies and mass infection campaigns against Tor and Torrent users. Another reason to not use Tor. But... The researchers at F-Secure have analyzed malicious documents uploaded to the free online uh, virus malware and URL scanner service VirusTotal and have discovered that at least one of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Europe has been the victim of a targeted attack. The documents used for cyber espionage campaign against the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Europe um, reference the EU sanctions against Russia over the crisis in Ukraine. The attackers used social engineering tactics to trick users into enabling macros, a necessary step to allow Cosmic Duke infection. The sample of Cosmic Duke analyzed by the experts was specifically designed to install Mini Duke malware on infected systems. Um, This was F-Secure, and I quote, 
In our analysis released in July, we mentioned that Cosmic Duke seems to be connected to Mini Duke because both malware families use the same loader, which has been used exclusively by the Mini Duke uh, malware group. The Cosmic Duke samples that infect the system with Mini Duke give us further evidence that the same actors behind both malware families. End quote. Initially, Cosmic Duke was initially linked to Mini Duke because the researchers discovered that the two malicious codes were using the same loader, and the new discovery confirms that you know that suspicion. Cosmic Duke, uh, and I quote um, from F Secure: Cosmic Duke and Mini Duke complement each other. Cosmic Duke is an info sealer, ideal for reconnaissance and data exfil, and Mini Duke is a backdoor, which gives the attacker full control of the computer. That was um, Timo from F-Secure, and that, that was in a comment to Security Week. So the experts highlighted that Cosmic Duke has been observed in operations targeting government entities, high-profile organizations, and users involved in the trafficking of controlled and illegal substances. The researchers at F-Secure have revealed that in APT campaigns, the attackers used a um, different infrastructure for Onion Duke that's shared with Mini Duke. In these cases, the threat actors used a full version of the malware. The experts also noticed that in the mass infection campaigns, CNC infrastructures were relying on compromised servers and free hosting services. And in those cases, the attackers have used a lighter version of Onion Duke. So you might ask, who is behind the cyber espionage campaigns? The experts speculated that Cosmic Duke, Mini Duke, and Onion Duke are the products of Russian state-sponsored hackers because of the campaigns targeting governments with an interest in Russian affairs. The fact that Cosmic Duke operations target users of illegal substances may also indicate the involvement of law enforcement agencies of the Russian government. So um, there should be more to come, so stay tuned for that. And that's all I have about it. What do you guys think? Nick? I think it's some cool stuff. <laughs> That's some cool malware. Absolutely. Definitely something to keep an eye out for. Oh, of course. So, um, next on our list, Rex Mundi. Yeah, so the Rex Monday group, or Mundi group, um, <clears throat> they stole some data from Banque Cantonal de Genevieve uh, because, because the bank refused to pay them. I think it was ten that was it ten thousand euros? Ten thousand euros, yep. The group uh threatened to publish some thirty thousand emails of the affected clients if the bank did not pay ten thousand euros by Friday. The bank reported that the data breach affected several thousands of its clients, but the bank had no financial damage. The stolen data includes names, addresses, phone numbers, and account numbers of the bank customers. The hackers have stolen customers' data, including names, addresses, phone numbers, and account numbers. The bank refused to provide further details on the incident while the authorities have started the investigation of the data breach. To reassure its customers, however, the bank confirmed that it has improved security for its web services and blocked access to online forms. The Rex Mundy hacking team at the expiration of the ultimatum for the payment of the requested payment has leaked online confidential data related to the bank customers. They are known for blackmailing activities. Cyber Warzone Portal reported that Rex Mundy hackers made data public about companies that refused to pay. The hackers launched a Tor website that hosts an archive of data stolen by the group during the attacks, and those are made public when companies decline to pay the ransom demand. 
Um, so um, haven't done much research into that, so I don't know um, how much stuff they've posted up and how much money they're actually making. But I thought it was pretty cool that the bank didn't give in to their demands. Plus, it was a low amount of money, so maybe that's why the bank uh, said it was neg- negligible. Right. So, what'd you think of that, Vikram? Well, I think if you're going to scam somebody, you should know what the market value is for ransom. (laughs) 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 Right? (laughs) I guess some guys are good at hacking and stealing information online, but they're not good at negotiations. So that reminds me of Austin Powers. (laughs) I was watching the other night when he hold something ransom for a million dollars and right. everybody one laughs. million dollars <laughs> they're like oh. operation uh preparation h i think it was oh, something like that <laughs> no, that was the name of the project <laughs> insert the tractor beam <laughs> <laughs> oh man that was hilarious all right so lizard right that's a title that's been thrown around here lizard squad so Lizard Stressor runs on hacked home routers. So the online attack surface... So in case you haven't, you didn't know, Sony's PlayStation Network was subject to a distributed denial of service, and it was attributed to Lizard Squad. So in that, um, the online attack service launched late last year by the same criminals who knocked Sony and Microsoft's gaming networks offline over the holidays is powered by... Mostly thousands of hacked home internet routers, says uh, Krebs on security. So, just days after the attacks on Sony and Microsoft, a group of young hoodlums calling themselves the Lizard, and again, this is someone else's report, this is Krebs, um, calling themselves the Lizard Squad, took responsibility for the attack and announced the whole thing was merely an elaborate commercial for their new booter or stressor site which is a service designed to help paying customers knock virtually any site or person offline for hours or days at a time. As it turns out, that service draws on internet bandwidth from hacked home internet routers around the globe that are protected by little more than a factory default username and password. What do we say time and time again? Change it. In the first few days of 2015, Krebs on security was taken offline by a series of large and sustained denial of service attacks, apparently orchestrated by the Lizard Squad. As Krebs noted in a previous story, the booter service, LizardStressor.su, is hosted as an internet service provider in Bosnia that is home to a large number of malicious and hostile sites. That provider happens to be the same bulletproof hosting network advertised by Specialist, which is the administrator of the cybercrime forum Darkcode. Until a few days ago, Darkcode and Lizard Stressor shared the same IP. Interestingly, one of the core members of Lizard Squad is an individual that goes by the nickname SP3C, so Spec, which is a subset of Specialist, but that's obvious. So on January 4th, Krebs on Security discovered the location of the malware that powers a botnet. Hard-coded inside of the malware was the location of the Lizard Stressor botnet controller, which happens to be situated in the same swath of internet address space occupied by the Lizard Stressor website. So the malicious code converts vulnerable systems into stressor bots and is a variation on a piece of rather crude malware first documented by Russian security firm Dr. Webb. Dr. But the malware itself appears to date back to early 2014. 
if you look at Google Chrome uh, browser plugin, it should auto-translate that page, the Dr. Dr. Web page. But for others, a Google translated copy of the Dr. Web write-up is on Krebs. So as you would be able to see in the write-up, in addition to turning the infected host into attack zombies, the malicious code uses infected systems to scan the internet for additional devices that allow access via factory default credentials, such as admin admin or root12345. Vic, you gave me crap earlier about my credentials. They're not on this list, so they're pretty good. Guys, don't let Hold him on, fool I think- you. Nick, Nick, do he you have some? He just changed his passwords. <laughs> Nick, and do you have some? Nick has a keylogger. Remind me when I get home to change my passwords. I don't know your home address. <laughs> <laughs> Should have went with Android. That was too funny. Should have went with a uh, went with an Android there. What's wrong with you, Nick? You know, I told her my home address too. Wow. I'm sorry. So, anyways, in this way, each infected host is constantly trying to spread the infection to new home routers and other devices, accepting incoming connections via Telnet with default creds. Telnet. Unsecure. Don't use it. If you desperately have to connect to your host remotely, use SSH. What's wrong with you? So, the botnet is not made entirely of home routers. Some of the infected hosts appear to be commercial routers at universities and companies, and there are undoubtedly other devices involved. The preponderance of routers represented in the botnet probably has to do with the way that the botnet spreads and scans for new potential hosts, but there is no reason the malware could spread or could not spread to a wide range of devices powered by the Linux operating system, including desktop servers and internet-connected devices. So... Krebs on Security had extensive help on this project from a team of security researchers that were working closely with law enforcement officials investigating the Lizard Squad. Those researchers, however, asked to remain anonymous in, um, in the story. So the researchers who assisted on this project are working with law enforcement officials and ISPs to get the affected systems taken offline. This is not the first time members of Lizard Squad have built a botnet. Shortly after their attack on Sony and Microsoft, the <laughs> group's members came up with the brilliant idea to mess with the Tor network. It's an anonymity system that bounces users' connections between multiple networks around the world, encrypting the communications at every step of the way. Their plan was to set up many hundreds of servers to act as Tor relays and somehow use that access to undermine the integrity of the Tor network. There's a graphic on um, Krebs that you can go ahead and check out, but the graphic reflects a sharp uptick in Tor relays stood up at the end of 2014, and this was a failed bid by the Lizard Squad to mess with Tor and the integrity of Tor. So according to sources close to the Lizard Squad investigation, the group's members used stolen credit cards to purchase thousands of instances of Google's cloud computing service, which is a virtual computing resource that can be rented by the day or longer. The scheme failed shortly after the bots were stood up as Google quickly became aware of the activity and shut down the computing resources that were purchased with the stolen cards. A Google Sports a Google spokesperson said that he was not able to discuss the specifics of the incidents, noting that only they're aware of the reports and have taken the appropriate actions. Nevertheless, the incident was documented in several places, including Pastebin, um, listing the Google bots that were used in the failed scheme, as well as a discussion thread on the 
tour project mailing list. So um, I would take this opportunity to jump into some router security 101. What do you guys think? Let's do it. Should we do it, Vic? Yeah, man. What do you think, Vic? Sure. So um, wireless and wired internet routers are very popular consumer devices, but few users take the time to make sure that these integral systems are locked down tightly. Don't make the same mistake. There um, will outline a few tips for hardening the hardware. So actually, no pun intended. So for starters, make sure you change the default credentials in the router. This is the username and password that were factory installed by the router manufacturer. The administrator page of most commercial routers can be accessed by typing 192.168.11 or 192.168.01 in a web browser address bar. Again, this is a privatized IP address, so you're going to have to be on your internal network when you're typing in this IP. If neither of those work, try looking up the documentation at the router's um, manufacturer site or checking to see if the address is listed um, on a list online. If you can't find it, open up a command prompt, start, run, or search for CMD and our IP config, and the address you should need should be under the default gateway under your local area connection. So this uh, opens up a different portion of the discussion with the insecurity of devices that are released by manufacturers. We kind of talked about this earlier. Um, Vic, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit. Um, Nest, right? So what do you think about this, Vic and Nick? current state of insecurity of devices that are released by manufacturers. Mm-mm. A little scary. Hey, weren't you telling me one time you work at some manufacturer? Oh, uh, yeah. So one of the places I was doing some IT support had these uh, PLCs where they actually... Right, right. Yeah, we went over that a little earlier with the um, structures of the fuselage right. with the honeycomb design. So... Um, in that discussion, we kind of talked about the Nest uh, mm-hmm. thermostat, amongst other things that, I mean, we were picking on Nest, but there's plenty of them out there. Um, but the PLCs, PLMs, SCADA devices, um, not only that, but consumer devices that are secure, and those were giant air quotes around that word. So basically, there's an implied level of security, even though it's not branded on the package. What I suggest is something like a surgeon's general warning on cigarettes, right? So a surgeon's general warning on a pack of cigarettes basically states, if you decide to smoke these cigarettes, there's going to be adverse effects, right? It's the same thing with spitting tobacco. It's the same thing with alcohol. Anything that can have an adverse effect, it has a label that typically warns you of the adverse effect. I think the same ideology should be applied to routers and um, wireless routers that you can purchase from the store. I mean, basically, when you purchase this, there is an implied level of security, whether it's there or not, um, you're installing it and you expect it to do what it needs to do. Now, is functionality defined by its security? Absolutely not. Um, If it can route packets and it can broadcast a wireless um, network to your house and people can connect to it, it's done its job. Whether it's done securely or not is something that's imposed by regulation. Um, And what regulations are out there right now that mandate how manufacturers have to um, produce or secure the devices they put out? Is there anything out there right now? So yeah. Well, FCC has a rule. FCC does, but 
how how widely are those enforced? And yeah, and a good example would be Nest. A good example would be the Nest thermostat, right? So, right. Um, you know, that that's a pretty popular product. Or the Google LED lights. No, they're not Google. They're the um, are they? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a uh, LED lights that are out there that you can control the um, them turning on and turning off because they're connected to your wireless network at home. That's kind of scary. Um, I don't know. I'd like to see more security built in, but let's give you listeners a few more tips. So, um, if you don't know the router's default username and password, you can Google it. Um, just Google the model number. It should come up. Or if you Google it, it'll come up with Matt's default username and password. Dude, <laughs> come on now. Unless you're Nick and you have AOL, then it will just take too long and you'll get mad. <laughs> you don't want to look it up. Siri also has his username and password stored on his phone. Yeah, but, not, but not his address, apparently. <laughs> right. Doesn't know where he lives. So that that's a good... That's good, right? I'm that, secure. That's a, that's right, a good, secure. That's a good your step. Your phone doesn't know your address. <laughs> so leaving the default creds... Um, as is out of the box is a very bad idea. Most modern routers will let you change both the default username and password. So do both. Um, but it's more important or most important that you choose a strong password. When you've changed the default password, you want to encrypt the connection if you're using a wireless router. OnGuardOnline.gov has published several video how-tos on enabling wireless encryption on your router. WPA2 is the strongest wireless encryption technology available in most modern routers followed by WPA and WP web. So that is very trivial to crack with open source tools. So don't use it unless it's your only option for web. So even if users who have a strong router password have protected their wireless internet connection with strong WPA2 passwords and have the security of their routers undermined by security flaws built into these routers. At issue is a technology called WPS, Wi-Fi Protected Setup that ships with many routers marketed to consumers and small businesses. According to the Wi-Fi Alliance, an industry group, WPS is designed to ease the task of setting up and configuring security on wireless local area networks. WPS enables typically users who possess little understanding of traditional Wi-Fi configuration and security settings to automatically configure new wireless networks and add new devices and enable security. But WPS may also expose routers to easy compromise. Um, Reaver. Anybody's used Reaver. Reaver, its purpose is an open source tool. It brute forces the WPS pin. Um, very easy to find that out. Uh, so, anyways, if your router is listed as vulnerable on a list um, that's on Krebs, you can disable the WPS from the router administration page. If you're not sure whether it can be or if you'd like to see whether the router maker has shipped to update the f- and fix the WPS problem on the hardware, there's a spreadsheet out there. If your router maker does not offer a firmware fix, consider installing opening uh, an open source alternative such as DDWirt or Tomato, which I love both of them. I have a DDWirt uh, wireless router at my house, very stable, very nice. You know, uh, let me add, not to cut you off, Matt, you just made me think of something. So, as time passes, I could probably see some third party support, or maybe even from the vendor where they offer a support where they actually they kind of take responsibility for managing your routers 
you know, maybe the average person. So the the problem with that. Oh, and, and I know with any uh, third party, you're going to lose some. Level of control. Yeah. So. I will say this, because I've thought about this. Oh, Security as a service, right? When it comes to like wireless routers and, you know, devices that consumers use. As it stands right now, if you have a Linux, Microsoft, Android, Apple device, you currently are waiting for the manufacturer to patch OS level issues, right? So if there's a security flaw, it's disclosed. You're not going to go in the kernel, fix it, and recompile the kernel. You wait for the manufacturer to do that for you, right? Or if it's open source, you wait for the open source community to release a patch. Um, why can't we have that same mentality for routers and, and network gear that is deployed at the consumer level? Um, while there may be updates to firmware, some updates happen that you really don't want to. I think the um, consumer just wants to set it and forget it. Yeah, but in this day and age, that's not acceptable. We need a sophisticated consumer, somebody that goes beyond. Right now, like if I go in the street, I bet you... Out of 10 people I ask, four people at least will know what spear phishing is, right? So their level of awareness has gone up significantly. So <laughs> You know why? <laughs> yeah, because of all the breaches, the hacks, exactly. <laughs> and everything that's going on. So uh, if they're more concerned about security and, and um, integrating security into, into current products that are out there, it will really take – it's consumer-driven, supply and demand, Right. So if I'm a consumer and I don't want to buy something because it's not secure, that will force the manufacturer's hand to make it more secure because then I just won't buy it until it's secure. So that requires two things, one of two things. Um, One being the manufacturer out of the goodness of their heart to just start fixing it, which typically doesn't happen, or the the, uh, consumer to kind of say the manufacturer we are not going to buy it until it's secure, and that requires an event to occur, right? Right now, things are happening behind the scenes with these compromises um, within particular environments. So like with Lizard Squad, they use default creds on home routers that were connected to the internet to harvest um, zombies for their botnet. Hey, wait, are they the manufacturers of the device? Who? (laughs) Lizard Squad? <laughs> no, they're not, but they're exploiting a flaw that the manufacturer put out. Maybe some of the people work for the manufacturers of the devices. I don't know. Hmm. But you can go to Shodan HQ. There's a lot of repositories that are out there that do crawl and um, you know, really really will tell you uh, it's a directory of you know, current, currently exploitable devices that are vulnerable. Um, and they're out there. So as a consumer, it's not illegal for you to go to those pages and say, hey, is my device vulnerable? Am I on this list, right? Um, but it is illegal for you to use that to harvest, you know, uh, systems to exploit and, and do nefarious things against. However, use what's out there and the resources that are out there to do your research. Um, so let's see. I wanted to talk about one thing before we wrap it up this week. One thing. Uh, hey, don't give me a hard time. What are you saying? I, I like to talk on this podcast? No, we got a 57-minute um, limit? time limit, right? Oh, uh, whatever. I got <laughs> all the time in the world for my listeners. So, hey, Is there any pizza left? 
Yeah, there's a little bit. High pockets. All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so security researcher Sammy, what is this? Kemkar has designed a USB wall charger dubbed Key Sweeper, which secretly logs keystrokes for Microsoft wireless keyboards nearby. Yes. So, uh, security researcher uh, Sammy has designed a cheap USB wall charger charger that can eavesdrop on almost any Microsoft wireless keyboard. The stealthy Arduino-based device, dubbed Key Sweeper, works like a generic USB mobile charger, but he has the capability to sniff, decrypt, and send back keystrokes from Microsoft's wireless keyboard in the vicinity. Key Sweeper can send captured data back to the operator over the internet or using an optional GSM chip. So um, this is quoted from Camcar. Keysweeper is a stealthy Arduino-based device camouflaged as a wall charger that wirelessly sniffs, decrypts, logs, and reports back all keystrokes from any Microsoft wireless keyboard in the vicinity. And um, it's detailed. he's detailed the steps um, to build the Keysweeper USB charger, explaining that it's easy, cheap uh, to assemble the device, and the unit cost ranges from $10 to $80, depending upon um, functions included. The instructions on how to build the device are online at uh, GitHub. So, the key sweeper also includes a web-based tool for live keystroke monitoring. Um, it could also be used by an attacker to send back SMS alerts triggered by specific typed keystrokes like usernames or URLs. And while the device is logging the keystrokes, he is able to continue working. It will continue to sniff the data also after it is unplugged because it is a rechargeable unit with a built-in battery. Uh, key sweeper is available to store the sniff keystrokes both online and locally on the device. So even if we do not know the MAC address, they can decrypt the keystroke. Using a few dollar Arduino and a one dollar Nordic RF trip, they can decrypt packets and see any stre- keystroke of any keyboard in the vicinity that's using Microsoft's wireless keyboard protocol, and it doesn't matter what OS is used. Kemcar explained that to have discovered several vulnerabilities that could be exploited to decrypt data transmitted by Microsoft's wireless keyboards, but the researcher hasn't tested the Arduino-based key sweeper on every Microsoft wireless keyboard, but he is confident that almost every Microsoft device is vulnerable. So uh, Microsoft says, we are aware of the reports about a key sweeper device and are investigating. So um, very cheap, it's rechargeable. We all know 128 gig um SD cards cheap cheap and they have the micro SDs now they're so cheap you could buy them at the gas station or like the ph- the uh pharmacy like Walgreens and stuff when you're checking out right so with that that's pretty crazy check it out we'll put it up on there um however we are at 57 minutes so Miller time, baby. It's Miller time, baby. Um, We're going to go ahead and take a brief break and come back and finish up the show. show. And we're back. What's up, guys? We're here to finish up the show. Um, So just uh, to let you guys know, we'll be out at ShmooCon this weekend. Um, So check me out. I'll be in the InfoSec Sync shirt walking around. So please um, don't be shy. Say hi. Um, Love talking information security. And do we have any shout-outs? Chandra? Hey, man. <laughs> you read? 
Y'all are wrong for that one. Yeah, we want to shout out our compadres in Compton, um, Mr. B-Rad and uh, Chandra. So that's going to close us out for this episode. Thanks, guys, for those shout-outs, and uh, we'll talk at you guys next week. Have a great week.